everyone. Good to see you tonight. You are definitely not among the fair weather worshipers. It's kind of cool out there, but good to see you all tonight. We're in Philippians tonight, chapter 2, and we want to look at verses 12 through 16. And I've entitled it, God Works In, You Work Out. I thought maybe that'd be an appropriate theme for the beginning of the year with all these New Year's resolutions, right? People working out, but... We're talking spiritually here, and uh, let's ask the Lord to bless our time. Lord, we thank you for your word now, and uh, it is alive. Uh, We thank you for the spirit who takes the word, works in our hearts, uh, so that we might um, live for you. And so, Lord, as we consider this issue of sanctification tonight and your work and our responsibility and how all that fits together, I pray it would be a profitable time of study for us. And be with the Iwana Youth Group Ministries ongoing as well this evening. Uh, thank you for each one that's able to come out and pray that for your special blessing on our time together. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, we note uh, first uh, slide here is, uh, no, is that, is that my first slide or do I have another one? There. Thank you. Uh, my outline. Yeah, we're working our way through here. Uh, it starts with, you know, the theme here is rejoice in the Lord, but then Salutation, opening prayer, rejoicing Christ our life, and then rejoicing Christ our example. We're in that, in that section right there tonight. And uh, as you go, he's very impressed with this church at, at Philippi, it would seem. I mean, they've been partners with him in the ministry from the time they got saved. And so he's very thankful for them. But as you weave your way through the book, you'll find he has a little concern about the issue of unity at, at the church here. And, of course, key to unity is humility, right? Humility. And Christ, of course, is the ultimate example of humility, as he brings out here in in chapter 2. Christ humbled himself and then, of course, was exalted above all. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Well, that brings us down to where we are tonight in chapter 2 and verses 12 and 13. And what we have here in chapter 2, 12 and 13, is, is a paradox. A paradox. Uh, this uh, whole idea as far as working out our salvation, and yet it's God who works in you both to will and to do. Well, which is it? Yes, <laughs> it's all of the above. But the question is, how does all that fit together? Uh, Here we go. Uh, Is salvation all of grace? Yes. Is sanctification all of grace? Yes. In both cases, all the glory goes to God. We can take no credit either for salvation or sanctification, Christian living. Uh, You know, as Sam Dalton used to say, if it's good, it's God. And if it's goof, that's me, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, if it's all of grace, which it is, then where does human responsibility fit in? Well, I say it fits in the mystery zone, right? It's God who works in our lives to do His will, and yet we are responsible to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Both statements are true. And so we're going to grapple with that a little bit tonight. You know, there are some mystery combinations in the Scripture when we talk about uh, human and divine. Can you think of any of those mystery combinations that we find? Well, we're talking about one here tonight, right? As far as uh, 
God works in us, and yet we're responsible to work out our salvation. But I'm thinking about things like the incarnation. Uh, you know, we got the deity of Christ, and we've got the humanity of Christ together in one person, and how that all fits together is a mystery. I mean, there's a profound depth of mystery in that. How about the scriptures themselves? It's a product of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. But were they just puppets? No. Huh? They had their own personality. They had their own style. And we can see the difference in between the the books. So, yeah, there was a person, the human person was brought to the table here too. Yet God sovereignly superintended the whole thing. We know that. But yet it is a product of, of the divine and the human working together. In, in a mysterious way, again, that's really quite beyond what we can completely comprehend. Well, we come to another one of those here tonight. Uh, just a few slides here. Um, John MacArthur says this, Christians who try to reconcile every doctrine in a humanly rational way are inevitably drawn to extremes. To achieve their goal of full understanding without mystery or apparent paradox... They emphasize one truth or aspect of God's word at the expense of others, which is to the finite mind uh, seem to contradict it. And I think that's a, that's a good statement. I sometimes think with his really harsh Calvinism, he goes a little far on the one side himself. Uh, you know, he's a little more Calvinistic than I am. Uh, in fact, I want to just call myself a biblicist, uh, living with those tensions that we find in the scriptures. But uh, note uh, this. This is a really great statement, and uh, it's a three-parter, so let me put it up here. Uh, This comes from MacArthur's book, uh, Our Sufficiency in Christ. But he talks about quietism, asserts that Christian is to be passive, quiet in the process of spiritual growth. Let God do everything. According to quietist teaching, the Christian must exert no energy or effort in the process uh, whatsoever. For feeble human effort only hinders the working of God's power. You know, just just get out of the way and let God, right? Let go and let God. That's what he will say here. Uh, So uh, in its extreme variety, quietism is a spiritual passivism in which God becomes wholly responsible for the believer's behavior. And the believer feels he must never exert personal effort to pursue righteous living. Quietism popularized the phrases, let go and let God, and I can't, he can. Well, that's quietism. And then uh, there is the opposite of quietism, which is pietism, which teaches that believers must work hard and practice extreme self-discipline to achieve personal piety. Pietism stresses aggressive Bible study, self-discipline, holy living through diligent obedience, pursuit of Christian duty. Extreme pietism doesn't stop there, but often adopts legalistic standards governing one's clothing, lifestyle, and so on. Most quietists and pietists would agree that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Their disagreement is in this area of sanctification. So who's right, the quietist or the pietist? (laughs) Or both properly understood. And that's what I think you have here. And that's what he's saying. In Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Paul presents the appropriate resolution between the believer's part and God's part in sanctification. Yet he makes no effort to rationally harmonize the two. He is content with the incomprehensibility and simply states both truths, saying in effect that on the one hand, sanctification is of believers, work it out. On the other hand, it's of God. Verse 12 sounds like a pietist, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In verse 13, he sounds like a quietist, God is at work in you. 
We are working in verse 12. God is working in verse 13. There's a perfect balance there. But it is admittedly difficult to understand fully. Yeah, we're back to the mystery zone. That's what I'm talking about. I do think there is a beautiful balance here. This is a great statement. I I love this. Maybe my favorite part in the whole book, uh, Our Sufficiency in Christ. We see this, uh, this paradox, this balance uh, that's, you know, I don't know if we can fully comprehend it, but uh, there are both emphases here in the text here tonight. Uh, somebody want to read for us uh, verses 12 and 13? Yeah, Shane? Okay, thank you. So uh, he says, therefore here, and of course, verse 12 builds on what he has just shared back here about Christ in uh, the previous verses here, the example of Christ in those previous verses. And here is really relating this now to how believers are to treat one another. And uh, just by way of review, some of the emphasis we've seen here, chapter 1, verse 27 Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then chapter 2, verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He's building on that emphasis here in terms of how we uh, should relate to one another with humility, uh, with the mind of Christ, with the example of Jesus Christ. And so we need to think like Christ in terms of humility. That's really the background emphasis here in relationship to therefore. Therefore, my beloved, he he exhorts them in love. And, you know, when Paul has something kind of pointed to say, he often will state it this way. My beloved, uh, he shares the truth in love. As you have always obeyed, this has been their pattern. Uh, They have been a very obedient group of believers in many respects. And so he commends them as a pattern. They have been a very obedient church. As you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, not only when I'm with you, But now he says, but now much more in my absence. Uh, So he's commending them on their obedience, not only when he's there, but when he's not there. And uh, especially in light of the current situation, this is very critical that they now continue that pattern of obedience. And so he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Notice he doesn't say uh, work for it, uh, work at it. Uh, work up your own. He doesn't say any of those. He says, work out. You already have salvation. Now work it out in your life. That's really what he is saying here. Put it into practice. It's in the present tense. Work out. Uh, work out your own salvation. By the way, it doesn't say work out somebody else's salvation. Uh, sometimes people want to do that. You know, it's like, okay, I, this is a great sermon for somebody else to hear. I wish they were here. <laughs> Uh, you know, okay, maybe that's true, but, but work out your own salvation is the emphasis here. And do it with fear and trembling. Uh, this speaks to all of us, certainly. Uh, we never get beyond this. Uh, don't work out your salvation with cockiness. No, with fear and trembling. Uh, what does this mean? Uh, fear, the word fear translated uh, in Greek is phobos, from which we get the English word phobia. Describes fright, terror, or reverential awe. I really think there's the real emphasis there, uh, reverential awe. Trembling is the Greek word 
a traumas, from which we get the English words tremor or trauma, refers to shaking. Uh, these two words are thought to be idiomatic uh, for a humble frame of mind. Uh, you know, we, again, we're not cocky and arrogant. We want to be working out our salvation with, with fear and trembling. A holy reverential awe uh, for this God that we, we serve. And we're going to need God's help to do it. Uh, notice verse 13. tells us what to do. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But then he continues on uh, the other side of the equation. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Uh, God is at work in us, and we are to work it out. But it's God who is fundamentally at work in us. It's God behind the scenes at work in our lives. And really, it's God who is behind all Christian virtues, ultimately. Um, as Paul would say, I am what I am by the grace of God. And he goes on to say, yet I worked harder than anybody else. <laughs> uh, but I am what I am by the grace of God. It's God at work in us, both to will. And this is the idea of God influences our will, our, our motives even. God is behind these good motives, uh, both to will and to do. Uh, this is the idea of, of he empowers us. Uh, he enables us uh, to do what? For his good pleasure. And that's our, our goal, ultimately, to please God and uh, to be children that he approves of in terms of how we're living. And so uh, this in particular, the good pleasure of God here, in context, as we will go on to see, relates to how we treat one another, how we relate to our fellow believers with humility uh, and what it looks like in our lives. So uh, we want to yield to God's in influence in terms of how we treat one another. That's where it goes on here, uh, what it goes on to talk about here. doesn't want us fighting, fussing, and feuding. He wants us getting along uh, in humility. And so the issue is this. Uh, what does pleasing God look like in this context? Uh, what does it look like to work out your salvation as, as God is at work in you? Well, verses 14 through 16 spell this out in practical terms. This is uh, salvation in plain view, so to speak. This is what a transformed life looks like. It, it is what a saved person's life should look like as his salvation is worked out in his life. It's what Christian humility and the mind of Christ looks like in practical reality. These are the things that lend themselves to God-pleasing Christian unity. And that's, again, the goal here. Okay, uh, well, let's uh, go on. We've got a real little short verse. Who wants to read verse 14? There's a, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay, go ahead. Yeah, 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 sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Sure. Right. Well, that's good. Those those are great applications, and I, but and and I that's all true. What you're saying, I mean, I'm sure Paul would say Amen to everything you're saying there. 
But what he goes on to say in context is really what he's emphasizing in verse 14. Yeah. yeah. Right? So that's a, that's a, a broad statement for everything that relates to the scripture that the scripture teaches us. Right? For sure. Like I say, application is broad. Context is immediate. And verse 14 comes before verse 15. So I want to really underscore verse 14 as far as what he's really driving home here. As far as uh, what we are to work out in our life. And so uh, somebody want to read verse 14? Yeah, Marianne. Well, boy, there's a mouthful there, isn't there? There's a lot to work on right there as far as our lives. And so right after saying, you know, what's that? You want to scratch it out? Okay, well, <laughs> I think there's a verse there towards the end of the book that says don't add to or take away. So we, we don't want to do that. But, uh, yeah, I know you are. I know you are. But notice here, he's talking in context here about do... What's that? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Yep. I don't know why we do that, but it's, it is a tendency to worry. That's, that's true. Instead of praying like we ought to do, that's for sure. But I want you to see here, in terms of the immediate context here, as far as uh, working out your salvation, and God is at work in you both to will and to do, uh, there is this immediate a context here, do all things without complaining and disputing. Again, I think what he has in mind here and his underlying concern here as far as the church of Philippi is there is a current here that is, is kind of threatening the unity just a little bit. And he'll get to it in earnest when he gets to chapter 4. But uh, notice, do all things. It's in the present tense in uh, imperative, the idea of be constantly doing this. Uh, do all things, not some things, but all things, without complaining. Uh, complaining, uh, that's the idea of grumbling, grumbling, uh, muttering, murmuring, whining, griping. Um, pretty easy to do that, right? Uh, what, do we, what do we complain about? Uh, it's so easy. to. You, do you know what's going on here in, in our, our present context, in our country, and there's a lot to whine about here right now. I, I find, I, I, I was convicted just thinking about this today. I said, oh my goodness. <laughs> I'm sure I was whining, whining as I was probably prepared this about something. Uh, it's, it's hard not to do that. Uh, Pentecost talks about what a major issue this was. This is not a minor thing, really. If you were to survey the Old Testament history and select one word that characterized Israel throughout the Old Testament period, you would have to conclude from the record that while the Israelites were chosen to be witnesses for God and worshipers of God, that which be, uh, came to characterize them above all else was griping, murmuring, and complaining. Well, Dwight Pentecost said that, you know, maybe you could dispute that, but it's certainly a major issue in the Old Testament. That's for sure. 
they were complaining all the time. They were complaining about Moses. They were complaining about their circumstances. Whatever it might be, a major problem. And, uh, you know, when I was young, my mother taught me the grumbler song. I don't know the whole thing, but, you know, the chorus went something like, they grumble on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, grumble on Thursday, too, grumble on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, grumble the whole week through. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, grumblers, the grumblers song. Uh, it's easy to do that. Did you complain about the weather today? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm afraid. We're, we're all human here, right? We're all human. It's, it's very easy to complain. It's good to be reminded, do all things without complaining. Now, this is what God wants us. He's at work in us to this end, and yet we have to work it out. And like we say, broad application here. But certainly in the immediate context, there's a real emphasis on doing everything without complaining and disputing. Uh, and I thought this was kind of interesting quote from Robert Gramacki. Uh, Very seldom would a believer aim his complaint directly at God, right? We're way too spiritual for that. Rather, he points it in a subtle fashion at the divinely appointed leaders. Boy, I think that's true, especially as you think about what Dwight Pentecost said back in the Old Testament. It was amazing how constantly it went back to to the leaders. And uh, it is easy to complain about leaders, especially when you have poor ones. Yeah, well, who isn't divinely appointed? (laughs) What's that? No poor leader? Oh, well, uh, we, we all are human. We're all weak, for sure. But um, then 1 Corinthians 10.10, 10, nor complain as some of them also complain. He's really referring back to the book of Numbers. He has several quotes here in that regard. And we're destroyed by the destroyer. And so very clear, um, complaining is not a good thing, not, not a God-approved thing. Rather, what's the theme of uh, Philippians? What's the theme? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Uh, chapter 4, he talks about in everything with thanksgiving. He goes on to talk about uh, godliness with contentment. Uh, or contentment. And so, yeah, those are the things that we should be uh, living out. Rejoicing, thanksgiving, contentment. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Okay. Disputing. What's disputing? Yeah, inviting, arguing. Arguing about this, arguing about that. And uh, what is the problem with uh, disputing, arguing? What's kind of behind that a lot of times? Yeah, selfishness. Not humility. Pride. Pride. Yeah. So all of that's one ball of wax here. And so, yeah, uh, do all things without complaining and disputing. And, you know, I, I don't like to be wrong. Do you like to be wrong? You know, the longer I'm married, the, the, quick, the, the quicker I am, I think, to listen a little more. Because I've been wrong a lot. Uh, and and it's, you eat humble, you know, crow here, whatever. But uh, do all things without complaining and, and disputing. So we don't want to be uh, grumbling. We don't want to be arguing. These are kind of the acid tests of sanctification here, certainly in the context here. And, uh, you know, as you think about complaining and disputing, these are, are sins of what? What part of the body? The flesh, right? But the mouth, the tongue, right? And what does James say is the hardest thing to control? The tongue. Man. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> well, that's impossible too. But uh, really, first concern is ourselves, right? Yeah, so the, the mouth. Uh, and Proverbs talks a lot about the mouth in terms of, of wisdom. So yeah, humility, I think, uh, does not uh, complain, uh, does not argue. This is in keeping with the mind of Christ. It's in keeping with a good testimony for Jesus Christ. Very challenging. I'd like to say I'm there, but I'm not. I'm working. God's at work in my life, too. I've got a ways to go. find it very easy to complain. Sometimes I complain about some of you. Maybe even all of you. I'm not sure. I know you never complain about me, though, so it's all good. Anyway, uh, we're all human here. We're all working on it. But praise the Lord, uh, God is at work. He's at work in us, both to will and to do. Uh, we just need to work it out. What's it look like? Well, not complaining. Uh, not disputing. All right. Any other thoughts there? Yeah. Well, <laughs> same here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with you, brother. I am totally with you. It, it, it is so true. And a lot of times we try to justify it, don't we? I mean, I do. I mean, I'm sure I've got my good reasons. <laughs> Just ask me. I can tell you. So, yeah, it's convicting. It's like we say. Maybe we want to kind of skip over it, but I wanted to kind of drill down and make an emphasis there. There's these other applications like you were talking about. I'm not denying any of that. I think you can make a biblical case for all of that. But I really want to, I want to drill down on this particular emphasis in context here because I really think it's what Paul is doing here. Okay, uh, let's have somebody read verse 15. Somebody want to read that? Yeah, Vince? Okay, you know, verse 14 did not, there's not a period there, right? There's a comma. And so the thought continues here, that you may be blameless and harmless. Well, how are you blameless and harmless? Well, you're living a pattern of life without complaining and disputing. And uh, so this is to be a, a way of life. Blameless is the idea of free from censure, above reproach. Um, no charge, no charge of being a, a grumbler. Uh, that's the idea. And uh, not having an argumentative spirit. Uh, that's the idea of blameless. As a, as a pattern of life, this doesn't define me. I'm not a complainer. I'm not, I don't have an argumentative spirit. That's blameless. That you may become blameless. Work it out. Work it out to where you get to this point, to where you're living a blameless life in that sense, above reproach. And harmless. Harmless is the idea of uh, of uncompromised. Uh, actually, this word harmless uh, really literally means unmixed. Uh, sometimes uh, if a, a seller of wine was wanting to sell wine, they'd mix some water in with it. Uh, so the idea of unmixed is that which is pure. And, and so the idea here is uncompromised. But you may be blameless and harmless, uncompromised. Children of God. I think he emphasizes that here for a reason in the sense that who are we? Our identity is what? Well, we are children of God. We represent God in the world. Uh, we're, we're, we're His children, and we are to reflect Him. Children of God without fault. 
uh, without fault. Uh, here the idea is uh, literally without uh, spot or blemish. Is used of sacrificial animals in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The idea is without defect. Uh, and, and again, in context, he's thinking in particular about doing everything without complaining and disputing. And then he says, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Uh, crooked is the idea of curved. Um, it's out of alignment with God. That's uh, the world we live in. In the midst, that's where we are, right in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Boy, that's where we are, right in the middle of a, of a crooked and perverse generation. Uh, perverse is, dis- is distorted or twisted, and uh, this generation refers to this current world system in, in which we live. Really, we think this is a takeoff of uh, Deuteronomy. Uh, phrase, crooked and perverse generation is borrowed from Deuteronomy 32, which is a description of Israel and their wicked ways. Uh, Verse 5, they have corrupted themselves. Uh, They are not his children because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation. Uh, Verse 20, he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faith. Boy, if this is a takeoff of Deuteronomy 32, which we believe, this is not very good company. We we, we don't want to (laughs) be characterized in this way. And then he says, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Uh, this, this is our calling in the context of a, of a dark, a perverse, twisted generation. We are to shine as lights in the world. Uh, we're not to isolate ourselves. It's kind of like, sometimes you just like to get away, right? Like to move to an island somewhere, just get away from everybody. That's not our calling. Uh, we are called to function right in the middle of this mess, as lights. It's a dark place. We're to be the light. Uh, that's our calling as, as the children of God. So God has sovereignly placed us right where we are for such a time as this. The Philippians found themselves sovereignly placed by God in the midst of a crooked and perverse world, and so do we. The worldly environment then and now was characterized by moral filth, and in the middle of that context, God's people are to be blameless, harmless, without fault in terms of their attitudes and conduct related to their mouths. Uh, That is in terms of complaining and disputing. Uh, Perverse worldlings don't watch their mouths. In contrast, we are to watch our mouths so that we might shine brightly as a testimony for Christ. Uh, Again, I think uh, our light shining brightly, you know, (laughs) a visible testimony has a lot to do with a verbal testimony in terms of, of what we're saying. It's not always about just, you know, preaching Jesus either. It's like, Am I complaining? Am I arguing? I have an argumentative spirit. Uh, what is the spirit behind me? Well, yeah. Perhaps an application that you would need to know. So we, we are in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation. That's what we find ourselves. In other words, we have a lot of good reasons to complain. Yes. But we should. Amen. <laughs> Very well said. That's true. Amen. Well, isn't that the truth? I mean, we could complain legitimately about a lot of things all the time, legitimately, you know, in our own minds. Uh, how true that is. Like I say, I, it, it, you just naturally kind of gravitate there. Have you heard about what's going on with our government? I mean, we could spend the rest of the night saying, well, what about this? And what about... And it, it all be true. But, you know, is it edifying? Is it what we're really called to do? And not that we close our eyes, you know, and all of that, that's true. What's that? No. 
Oh, yeah, he does. Absolutely. Uh, let your sh- light shine. Uh, you know, Jesus spoke to this in Matthew chapter 5. You are the light of the world. I thought Jesus was the light of the world. Is he? Well, how come it says here, you are the light of the world? Is it Jesus or is it you? <laughs> there you go. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's right. Uh, we're reflectors, right? We're reflecting his light, really. But uh, yeah, he's the ultimate light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine. Let it shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, he's not talking about an egotistical, you know, hey, look at me, everybody. I think he's saying, put it on display. Put, put the life of Christ on display. Put the truth of Christ on display. And in particular, again here, uh, the thought continues from verse 14 about doing everything without complaining and dispute, uh, disputing. When you do that, your light is shining. I mean, you'll make a difference. The whole world is complaining and disputing. That's what they do out here. The whole world, all the time. You want to be different? Just don't do this. Don't be a complainer. Don't have an argumentative spirit. And your light will be shining. They'll say, man, that is different. That's amazing. Let your light shine in the world. And then uh, verse 16. Uh, Who wants to read that? Albert, you want to read that for us? Okay. Uh, yes, and now, you know, he's talking about holding fast the word of life. Uh, this enters in and kind of broadens out here. Uh, really, uh, holding fast my new King James, what did yours say? Holding fast. Holding fast. Some translate it holding forth. And, and it could just as legitimately be translated holding forth. And perhaps... Maybe that's even the the bigger emphasis here. But holding fast and holding forth probably really kind of go together too. Uh, Holding fast the word of life. What is the word of life? That's true. The gospel, right? The gospel. And so uh, when we think about eternal life, we think about the gospel. We think about Jesus, the message of Jesus, the the gospel message, uh, that word of life. And again, their testimony is to be visualized, but it's also certainly to be verbalized. And uh, so we, we want to uh, be those who are reflecting the truth of not being complainers, not being disputers, but rather holding forth the word of life. And then he says, to this end, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yours says be proud, right? Yeah. Uh, that idea of to glory in. Uh, not in a flesh sense. But rejoice is not a bad translation here. But notice he's got an eternal perspective. Uh, when he says that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, when is the day of Christ? Today. Well. Well, yeah, in that sense. But he's looking forward here, right? Yeah. yeah. What did you say, Pat? The judgment seat of Christ. Yeah, yeah, the judgment seat of Christ. Yeah, uh, when the believers are going to be evaluated. Uh, the, the, the coming uh, day of Christ is when he comes for us and, and then we are taken uh, before the judgment seat of Christ. Exactly. What we might call the, the day of evaluation. Uh, 
here in 2 Corinthians 5, therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. I love this summary statement in terms of what really motivated Paul. The goal in the end is to be pleasing to him. I, you know, I'm sure you live for that, right? You want to hear the Lord's, well done. I mean, he evaluates our life. Th- that, this is the ultimate test. What is he going to say? Uh, the goal is to be well-pleasing to him. And then he says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is evaluation day. This is the day of Christ. That each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Of course, uh, the issue is rewards here. You know, uh, as far as we're not, we're not going to be judged for the penalty of sin. Uh, Christ was judged on the cross for us. He's a savior. and He took it all. The issue is quality, good or bad. Uh, what is the quality of our workmanship? And we will be judged uh, according to that in this day of Christ. But notice what he is saying. He is exhorting the Philippian believers here to hold fast the word so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. He's concerned about what they're doing and how that's going to affect him in the day of Christ. And then he says, to what end? That I have not run in vain or labored in vain. (laughs) Isn't that kind of interesting? Paul, he said, well, you're kind of selfish. You're kind of concerned ultimately about you, not just about us on the the day of Christ. You're concerned about you and how this is going to affect you in the day of Christ. That I didn't run in vain. That, That... it was, it was not empty. It was not uh, void. Uh, that I have not run. Run's an athletic term. Labored is an intensive term related to uh, physical exhaustion in, in work. What's that? Right. Exactly. Well, that's true. Yeah, if you're working for self, it's certainly not counting. That's right. But what I want you to see here is he's talking about investing in the lives of these Philippians. And he's very concerned that they go on for Jesus Christ. He sees them as a spiritual investment. You need to see people this way. Uh, It'll change the way you do ministry. A couple of slides here. Paul had worked hard to see these people come along in, in the faith and to stand for the gospel. We must keep a balance here. On the one hand, we know that whatever we do for the Lord, whether the people we build into are faithful or not, God is going to reward us. Uh, your, your labor is not in vain in the Lord, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. On the other hand, our eternal dividends are attached to the fruitfulness of those we build into. In a sense, you have a part in whatever they do for the Lord. If we truly saw things this way, we would probably be a whole lot more faithful in following up on new converts and building into their lives. Uh, you know, there, there is kind of this, uh, you know, you want to invest. People are all into investments out here. You want to invest wisely so you get a good return. How about spiritually? How about spiritually? You know, the Bible says, build into faithful men uh, who will continue on. Uh, one more slide here. In effect, what Paul is saying to them is this. If you allow disunity to destroy your testimony, if you are characterized by grumbling, arguing, to where it destroys your testimony... You won't be getting a reward on Judgment Day, and all my investment in you in terms of gospel ministry will have been in vain. Oh, I will still receive my reward, but it will be nothing in comparison to what it could have been had you continued to shine brightly for the gospel. The fact is, it does matter what happens to our converts. It does matter what happens to the people we are building into. Their best spiritual interests are in our 
best eternal interests. There's a line I really want to emphasize. Their best spiritual interests are in our best eternal interests. Realizing this should motivate us to pray for them, like Paul did, to encourage them, to challenge them, as Paul did, to build into them, like Paul did. Where is your man? Where is your woman? Where is your young person? Where are the people you are building into to further the cause of the gospel? People are all into investments these days, but what about investing in people? That is investing, investing in eternity. And I think that's where he ends up here. Uh, we want to maintain an eternal perspective, so much to distract us and get our attention here. Uh, we want to have an eternal perspective, and we want to, in light of eternity, invest in people. Invest in people, because that is really what is going to count for all eternity. Why did Jesus give his life again? Oh, oh, it was for people. People, that's what the true treasure is all about. That's the real interest that God has. And what are we doing with our lives? He wants us to invest in people. In a sense, yes, we're rewarded for our labors. But then even as they continue on, we have a part in that. I always tell my wife, you know, we're in this thing together. My work is your work. We're in this together. I think that was true as the body of Christ. We're all in this together. Whatever we're doing, it's, it's not just me I'm concerned about you and you going on, you being fruitful. It's, uh, it all works together. All right, any other thoughts as we wrap up here tonight? Okay, very good. Good uh, interaction tonight. Uh, prayer sheets, anybody need one?